coming live from Ipswich, UK, is our guest today, early today morning. Welcome to this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live, the show which ensures that you profit from your time spent here with experts, either through their industry insights, information, or simply learning from them. But before I move forward, may I request you to subscribe, follow, like, and comment on whichever platform you are watching or listening to this show on. And today we have we have Dr. Guy Windsor consulting swordsman. Yes, that's actually his job. And he will tell us what and why of everything that he does, and he does so well. So welcome to the show, Guy. Welcome. Uh, indeed, I I'm actually looking forward to this interview myself and learning a lot about what you do and why you do and how you are making such a huge difference to something so ancient but so relevant in modern times. Do tell us what exactly this is all about. Well, thank you, AJ. It's lovely to meet you. It's nice to be here. And hello to everyone who is watching and listening. Um, so basically what I do is I do research, academic research into historical martial arts from primarily from Italy. So medieval combat and Renaissance combat. So you can think of it, if you like, as knights and musketeers. And there were actually books written in that period, so Sebuchet between 600 years ago up to the present, about how people actually fought with swords. So I research those books, figure out what they're trying to show us, and then I create practical, useful, you can actually show up and do it, martial arts from that research, which I then teach to my students, and I write books about it and create online courses about it and so on. So, um, Basically, what I do is I teach people how to fight with big swords. And, and why not? What, uh, it, 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 everybody is trying to make it a peaceful world, and you are teaching people to fight with big swords, guy. Yes. When did this uh, start? <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, but here's the funny thing. Okay. People who practice a martial art are almost invariably less likely to get into a fight with someone than people who don't. Right? right for basically two reasons i think the first reason is because they are interacting with violence in this kind of controlled way it it gives them an outlet for you know like competition and like facing their fears and all that sort of thing which should we say drunk young men do in the pub but martial artists do it in a controlled environment in which no one usually gets hurt so that's the first thing. And the second thing is when you study violence, you get an appreciation for just what horrific kind of damage it can do. And so the idea of wanting to do it outside of the controlled environment goes away. Right. There's no romance to having a sword stuck through you. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So Absolutely. so it, it's paradoxical. It's, you know, people who fight with swords tend to be very peaceful. <laughs> Yes, yes, I, I get it. Actually, I was trying to joke on that one, but yeah. I get it. Uh, yeah, yeah. See, you you are an international, you know, world-renowned instructor and a pioneering researcher of medieval and Renaissance martial arts. You are also a great author. I saw your page and I was you like, uh, I do like reading and the way you have put things, I was mighty impressed. Guy. So I, I don't look at you as a, just a swordsman. And and the way you write about what is useful to read 
and you don't normally read about swords, but most of the things that you read are not about swords, but about life, about everything else. Talking of, you know, this particular thing that you do, a guy, tell us how did it begin, when it began, how did you get into all these things? You are very educated. You could have chosen to go into <laughs> any other field, you know, but this that, particular that's thing is, yes, yes. So that is my question is, how did this begin and when did this begin? Okay, it really began when I was little. So when I was about five or six and my big brother wasn't very nice to me when I was little. And so I wanted to learn martial arts so I could beat up my big brother. That's really <laughs> where it started. And I've always liked swords, blades, all sorts of things. For, for a time, for, for about four years in my 20s, I worked as a cabinet maker making furniture. And part of the reason I liked that so much is because you're dealing with sharp steel all the time, you know, chisels and planes and whatnot. So um, when I was a, like a teenager, I discovered fencing, like, like modern sport fencing, which was the closest thing I could find to sword fighting. Um, and when I got to university and I joined all the martial arts clubs and was doing lots of different kinds of martial arts just because they're fascinating to me. And uh, I've, I don't know where it comes from exactly, but I've always believed that there's, you know, if you have the luxury and it is a luxury of being able to choose what you do for a living, to choose how you spend your working days, you know, your 40 hours a week or however, however long you work. I mean, most people in the world don't have that luxury, right? That this is the only job that's available and they go and do that so their children don't starve. But that's, so having this opportunity to basically choose what I do for a living, I thought, okay, it has to be something that I think is fundamentally worthwhile, right? And it has to be something that is um, like deeply interesting to me. And cabinet making was that for a while, but the swords, the reason I really got into teaching swords for a living is because I've seen firsthand how people who are perhaps unfit or unhappy or generally just not in a good place, for some people, swords just bring them out of that, right? They People get off the sofa and into exercise. People get from being um, sort of fearful and overwhelmed into being confident and more happy, okay? So for a small proportion of the human population, swords are basically therapy, right? And it really makes a huge difference to their quality of life. And my interest in how sword fights really worked back in the day, so my historical research interest and my martial arts interest and the capacity for swords to have this beneficial effect on people all kind of came together and it was like right i've got to do that <laughs> so that's what i'm doing i've been doing it for 20 years now that's great and in fact uh, so, uh, you know learning this skill uh, it's almost like a therapy is also a great point that you made because uh, in other words it helps people discover themselves like any other right. sport yeah exactly and for some people uh, the great thing about swords i think is it to a large degree, 
because it's completely obsolete, right? Nobody actually needs to know how to fight with a medieval longsword, uh, you know, because they're going to have a sword fight tomorrow, right? It's completely obsolete, which right. means that it doesn't matter what the student's starting point is. Okay, in anything that's really sort of practical and you have to perform, then students who are, shall we say, disabled, for instance, or too overweight to exercise well yet, or maybe they come to this in their 60s instead of when they're a kid, right? And so the time they have to train is, you know, they don't have the next 50 years to get good at this. They maybe only have, I don't know, 20 left. Okay, so because the, the because swordsmanship is obsolete it i really don't care how um so how likely a given student is to get to be a really superb sword fighter i only care how well they can develop from their starting point right so if they improve by a hundred percent over the next two years right if they started from a very poor starting position, they're 100% better, that's fantastic, that's enough. Objectively, they're maybe not that good yet at sword fighting, but their improvement has been massive. Okay, so it's, I'm really not that interested in um, disciplines that require massive sort of genetic advantage to start. So, you know, I wouldn't be interested in basketball because if you're less than six foot, two or something there's absolutely no way you're ever going to be seriously good at basketball there's a massive genetic component there so that makes it boring whereas with swords you can be short you can be tall you can be fat you can be thin you can have a history of various illnesses or diseases or arthritis or whatever and no matter what your starting point you can interact with swords in a useful way and improve over time and that to me is really satisfying Right, right. One question, you know, that comes sure. to my mind is that how did you learn so many of these swords? It's it's a great skill to learn, and uh, one is enough. One one can be enough. <laughs> but had, yes, but but you took that extra. You had that extra passion to learn so many of them, and you give training in almost so. I don't know which one is left. I can say it's you know each one of them. Well. Okay, I'm I'm pretty familiar with all of the European sword styles from, shall we say, 1300 when records began to about 1800, um, after which I start to lose interest. Okay, so in that 500 year period, all the really the major popular styles um, I have at least familiarity with. And there are four or five that I'm comfortable teaching at a professional level. Okay. But I've been doing this research since 1993. So that's nearly 30 years. So I've had lots and lots of time to, to study. So, and, and also, um, to me, every different style has its pros and cons, its, its attractive features and its less attractive features. And there isn't just one that I'm mad about. I'm mad about swords. I'm mad about the process of finding out how any particular sword was used historically. And I'm mad about the process of teaching that to my students, 
right? Um, and you know, some students just light up when they see a rapier, like D'Artagnan and Three Musketeers rapier. Um, some students can light up when they see a longsword, like a knightly longsword, so knights in shining armor. Um, other students are just really into 18th century small sword, or they're really into 14th century sword and buckler, where you have this little round shield. Um, familiar to perhaps um, many of your uh, Indian listeners, because several Indian martial arts have similar sword and shield combinations, Gatka, for instance, and also I think Kalari Payat does too. So, yeah, I mean, why, why, why stick to one, <laughs> one type of sword when there are so many and they are so cool? And so yeah. for me, the limiting factor is language. So I only do serious research in sources where I can read the original language. And the original languages in which sword fighting systems are written, I mean, there are, there are dozens, um, but I can read English, Italian, French, my French is a little bit weaker than my Italian, Spanish, again, like my French. Okay, I can also read Finnish, but there aren't very many original sources in Finnish. Okay, so I don't do the German stuff because I don't read German. I don't do the Persian stuff because I don't read Persian. I don't do any of the Indian stuff. I don't read any of the Indian languages at all, to my shame. I should. <laughs> but, so, so for me, it's, okay, if I'm going to get serious about this martial art, I need to be able to read the original, uh, the texts in the original language and the process of learning a language. For me, it's not easy. So, you know, I'm not a natural linguist. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of limited by the languages that I already know. Uh, so that's basically where the, my limitations come in, um, which is why it's for me, primarily uh, medieval and Renaissance Italian sword fighting styles and the 18th century French ones. Uh, there aren't very many sources in English. And to be honest, I don't find them that interesting, which is unfortunate because English is my native language and that would be the easiest for me. But no, I kind of fell in love with the Italian stuff too early. Your passion for learning this is really inspiring, uh, Guy, because you see, you read a lot of books, but reading books just won't make you, you know, so much of skilled in this particular art to be able to become right. an instructor. If I read all of Shakespeare does not make me a great author, isn't it? True. Yeah, absolutely. I um, need to have everybody reads those uh, alphabets, but everybody do not be, bring uh, write as fluently as everybody, anybody else as, you know, great writers. So it has to come from within. And I really admire that passion. But I want to understand, Guy, that Sure. You learn, you teach to a lot of students, but who did you learn all this from? Where did you find them? Okay, I learned um, historical martial arts. Uh, well, I learned modern martial arts, also con contemporary martial arts like Tai Chi and Karate and that sort of thing, um, because that's what was available. And that gave me a kind of basis for understanding some of the historical stuff. But I learned the historical martial arts from the books. So, I mean, for example, um, this book yep. here yes, was yes, actually yes. printed. Let me get it closer to the camera so people can see. Yes, yes, no problem. And in fact, this, not just about the books, you also show us show us the source also. Yeah, sure. Yes. Okay. Yes. So this book is is uh, 412 years old. It was printed in 1610. Okay. And 
it tells you how to stand, how to step, how to strike, what to do when your opponent does this, what to do when your opponent does that. And it has detailed text and it has illustrations. Okay. So I learned the historical martial arts from the books, right? Which is why it took so long, right? It's really, really hard because you, you don't it. have it. Yeah. You, le- you, le- you learned it. So I, learned, I don't see I that it. took so long part there. I yeah, read that book. I will never be able to learn anything out of that. Well, I, 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 I've been doing it for nearly 30 years and, um, you know, it's been my actual full-time job for 20 years. So, you know, I've had time to study. And also, yeah, and I didn't learn it on my own. So before I was an instructor, I had friends who I was doing the research with. So, you know, you, you come across this thing in the book and you go, well, okay, I think it's like this. And your, your, your training partner goes, well, okay, let's try it. And you try it choreographically. So I do this, you do that, I do this. That seems to work. And then you speed it up a bit and then you randomize it a little bit and then you just try and hit each other and see if it works in that context and stuff so there's this continual iterative process of seeing it in the book working it out in practice testing it and adapting it under increasing degrees of stress and then going back to the book and seeing whether it still fits okay and yeah it takes a long time um and, you know, what is time for? <laughs> to spend the things you really like that you find useful. So, so yeah, I mean, obviously I didn't start, I, I only, I've only had this particular book for um, about six months. It costs more than my car. I love it very much. Yeah. Um, yeah. But how, most, how did you find this? Well, um, there's, a, there's a story there. Just, just let me finish the previous thing. Yes, is that, sure. Um, there are scans of these sorts of books and photocopies uh, we started out with photocopies back in the 90s nowadays there are detailed high resolution scans of books like this and many others uh, available on the internet so you can actually anybody can download the pictures and look at them and read the text if they have the language skills and look at the pictures and and work directly from the texts so the field has massively benefited from the internet and from modern scanning technology and digital photography. Okay, so, you know, any you, know, you don't have to be able to afford, I mean, this, I don't know if I said, this thing costs more than my car, right? That's a ridiculous amount of money to pay for a book, right? Um, but I have to keep this copy safe. So the way I came across this was um, I was looking for one, because this is this book is uh, Rodolfo Capoferro's Il Gran Simulacro dell'Arte del Uso della Scherma, which just rolls off the tongue, <laughs> uh, which is the great representation of the art and practice of fencing, um, written in or published in 1610. And I've been working from copies and whatnot for years. And I've written, I think, five books on this book, explaining this book. So when a copy of it became available through this um, Italian antiquarian books dealer in Italy, just before Christmas last year, and I happened to have the money. It's like, that's very unusual for a book like this to appear, and I happened to have the money. <laughs> um, so I just went, you know, this is a sign. This is a sign. I have to have it. So now it's mine, and I'm keeping it very safe, and I'll just pop it back on the stand so I 
Yes. They drop it. Um, yeah, so so the sort of weapon that that yes. Catafaro was using is a rapier, which is distinguished by a long, slim blade optimized for thrusting and a complex kind of fancy hilt, which protects the hand. Um, and it's a civilian weapon generally. The military civilian distinction doesn't really work the same way as it does now back in the 16th century. But basically, it's the the style that we're looking at is for duelists. So let's say you and I were in the pub and you said something about my girlfriend and I said something about your mum. And so we went outside and we pulled out our swords and we tried to murder each other. This is the kind of weapon, if it was like 1600, this is the kind of weapon us as gentlemen would probably be carrying. Um, and it's optimized for dueling, so one-to-one -one combat, um, out of armor. Um, so this is this is like a, yes, it's, it's, it's beautiful and it's deadly and <laughs> it's great fun to play with. Um, and, and it must have tasted blood. Well, this one, this one is a modern practice weapon. Okay. Um, I do have a small sword here, um, which is this one. This one is from about, I want to say, 1780. So 1780? About, yeah, so it's about 240 years old, maybe. It's hard to tell exactly where, when it was made, and it's, it's seen a bit of damage. But the blade um, is this triangular has this triangular cross section, and it doesn't cut at all. It is optimized only for making holes in people. It's a horrible, horrible okay. thing when you think about it. Um, but this one, from the from the wear and tear on the blade and its general condition, I would say it is likely that this was used at some point. Yeah. Right? Whether the person who had it won or not, I don't know. Right? right? Yeah, that's but it's, that's interesting. But it's, it's yes. it's it's not a decorative piece. It's a it's a more practical, you know. This is for actually fighting with sword. And again, this is 18th century. Um, it's optimized for dueling out of armor, um, which the armor thing makes a big difference. So by should we say by the 1550s, it was normal for people to fight out of armor because um, guns had. had developed to the point where armor wasn't much use against guns. Right. So, yeah, there, there's a whole complicated <laughs> bunch of history that I'm just kind of skipping over because it would take me like yeah. two hours to explain it all. But basically, um, before the middle of the 16th century, it was normal for duels between noblemen or gentlemen to occur in armor and in public. And then by the end of these 1500s, it was normal for duels between gentlemen or noblemen to occur out of armor and in private. And that made a big difference to the kinds of swords that people were carrying. So yeah, this is this isn't much use against a man in armor, but it's 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 a horrible murderous murder spike. Yes. <laughs> and which will yeah, and it makes these triangular shaped holes in people. It's horrible. It's but great fun defense. You know, yes, yes. Yeah. Holes big enough, the person won't know, and they would, <laughs> they would just be, fall down. You know, this the end is very deadly. Yeah, say that, yeah, that, yes. yeah. Um, it's it's kind of nasty, but it's fun to fence because it's fought very close and it's very fast, and it's uh, because when you're 
when you're doing practice, you have protective equipment and you have, you, I don't fence people with this. This is just for like demonstration, obviously. Um, okay. So, and so when, when you thrust and you can, you know, you hit your, your partner, the blade bends, the point is blunt and has a rubber thing on it and they're wearing protective equipment. So you can see the hit has arrived. They feel the hit has arrived and nobody gets hurt, which is much better. Okay. And any, anyone, any other one you want to, you know, show to oh, us? Oh, wow. Well, I, I, your well, favorite. There are millions. Yes. <laughs> okay. This one. Yeah. I was this seeing one. that. That looked big. This one, this one, this one is lovely. Okay. This is a knightly long sword and it is. This one is actually sharp. It's a modern replica, but it's it's sharp. Um, so it's got this, it's very pointy. It cuts amazingly well. I mean, we've done test cuts with swords like this, and it would easily take somebody's leg completely off. Just off it goes, right? It's, it's superb for cutting, but it's also very good for thrusting. And the thing about uh, European medieval armor is you have basically these overlapping steel plates okay and you can't cut through the steel plate with a sword right? right what you can do is you get in really close and you wiggle the point in between the gaps in the armor so into the armpit for example or under the jaw or through the visor or um actually because often they were riding on horseback and it's in Basically, it's impossible to get good armor over the buttocks. So you oh, stab right. them in the ass. Um, also, um, some of the medieval sources talk about stabbing people in the sole of the foot because you have right. armor covering the top of the foot. But if you're in a sort of wrestling type position and you can move them so that the sole of their foot becomes available, that just has a thin leather shoe on it. So you can stab this through the sole of the shoe and into the sole of the foot. And someone who has a big steel spike stuck in their foot isn't going to be fighting much longer. So, yeah, there are, there are, there are all sorts of ways of using <laughs> this to deal with a man in armor. But also it's for out of armor as well. So, you know, where you, where you cut and thrust against a person who's wearing just maybe a jacket. And, yeah. Uh, again, it does horrible damage if you do it, um, should we say, if you did it for real, it's nasty, murderous stuff. But when you do it as a martial art, for practice, for fun with your friends, it is just good, clean fun, and no one gets seriously hurt. I was, I just went back into time, and I was just thinking that earlier, I never, with all this bloodshed and, you know, so close combat, I never heard something called post traumatic, you know, disorder, whatever you call PTSD, yeah. something PTSD. like that, stress syndrome. Yeah. But in today's time, when you have guns and people fighting, still there is a distance between them. You get to see, hear all these things and people need a lot of, uh, you know, rehabilitation after that. Uh, I was, so that's what I, what was, I was thinking like that earlier people used to fight so closely, how they used to deal with such stuff after the wars or fights were over. Um, okay, there is good evidence to suggest that PTSD was as common in history as it is now. The difference is it wasn't recognized. Okay, okay? so for example, the, the sort of battle fatigue or shell shock, 
was understood as a psychological phenomenon around when it occurred in, in large numbers during the First World War. Before that, it was not, it wasn't recognized, but there are all sorts of historical um, sources which describe behaviors that we would now realize were post-traumatic stress. So people haven't changed over that period. But what's happened is we have become able to identify things that we weren't previously able to identify. And it's always been true that for a very small percentage of the human population, maybe one and a half, two percent, killing people is just no big deal. Right. It's whatever. Um, and historically, most of the actual killing was done by a tiny minority of the soldiers on the field. Okay. okay. And most casualties occur after one side has turned and run because okay. killing someone who's coming towards you and you see their face is psychologically much harder than killing someone who after all of this stressful fighting stuff has happened, they turn around and they run away and people right. instinctively run them down and stab them in the back. It's, it's, it's weird. Human brains are weird. Um, so there's, there's always been this fundamental um, sort of split in any army between the killers and the support team. Okay, right. and in fact, one of the one of the reasons why we had such hideous casualties in, for instance, the sec in the First World War and the Second World War and so on, and why so many casualties in medieval combat, uh, in siege warfare, for example were from artillery is because while an individual soldier with a gun will choose to shoot or not shoot, if there's three of you or five of you or 10 of you working on a trebuchet or a cannon or a machine gun or artillery piece or whatever, you all work together and the gun always fires or the weapon always fires. Yeah. And so it's, it's um, the rate of fire from a crew served weapon is always near 100%. Um, before modern training methods were developed in the 1960s, the rate of fire for infantrymen, for riflemen with a, with a rifle, was maybe 20% would shoot at all, and maybe 2 or 3% would shoot at the enemy. Um, uh, the modern training methods have changed that. Now, almost all soldiers shoot at the enemy. I'm not sure that's an improvement, to be honest. Um, but so, so look, look, looking back at the historical records, that sort of these sort of psychological quirks were were still present. I mean, there are examples of muskets recovered from American Civil War battlefields, where you know, with a musket, there's a lot of you know, you take the ball and you put it down, or take the powder, put it down, take the ball, put it down, and shove it down with a ramrod and prime the pan, cock it back and fire. I'm missing out a couple of steps and my reenactment friends are going to be, guy, you forgot this bit. No, I'm just trying to make it quick. Um, but they have recovered guns from American Civil War battlefields that have been loaded like five, six, seven times. So it looks like you're doing the thing. But you can't bring yourself to actually shoot. Yeah. So you kind of pretend to shoot and then you do the thing again. 
And so everyone thinks you're shooting and actually you're not. Um, and looking at the casualty rates from those battles, it's pretty clear that not everyone was shooting. And if they, those that were shooting, many of them were not shooting at the enemy. Fascinating. And you know, a yeah. lot, of, lot of insight into human mind and you know, the way they think even in the toughest of times when they could get killed, but so many decide not to shoot. But our, your training and swordsmanship and everything that you do is about therapy. You use it as a therapy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. It's, so let's... It's, it's, it's to make people like better, happier, stronger versions of themselves. Absolutely. And so that's so relieving and so uh, you, inspiring too. That how you can use something that has such a different sort of a connotation for in a very positive way manner and and right. there are so many other sports today that people go for uh, you know physical activities for learning and uh, and improvising and making their lives better so you put a lot of you know emphasis on physical benefits of uh, fencing and uh, sportsmanship yeah. can you tell us people who are listening to this program now and will listen as we go by how exactly they can make their lives better uh, with this with this stuff okay as i see it uh health so your, your well-being is look, there's physical well-being and there's mental health okay and physical well-being is based on what you eat how you move and how well you sleep that's basically it and of course the sword fighting martial arts stuff is all about how well you sleep. That's right. It's all about movement. Right. <laughs> and of course, yeah. these, things, these things are positively reinforcing each other. So if you eat well and exercise well, you're probably going to sleep better. So there's that. The swords provide the exercise component that is necessary to a modern life. But then mental health is also hugely about sleep, but it's about primarily meaning and connection. Okay? So... If you're doing something you believe to be meaningful, to be valuable, to be intrinsically worthwhile, then you're likely to be more mentally healthy and able to withstand more stress than if you're doing something that you think is trivial or stupid or unimportant. Okay. Um, and connection is all about how you interact with people, your connections to other people. And the thing about if you're into swords, they're meaningful. And us sword people, we tend to get along, right? So, you know, somebody shows up to a historical martial arts club. Again, because we're not concerned about like tournament victories or whatever, it doesn't matter if you're tall or short or fat or thin or strong and fit or unfit or old or young or whatever. We don't care, right? So you, you get this community almost immediately of other people who are also really interested in swords. And so from a mental health perspective, the swordsmanship pra uh, practice, it gives you connection to other people. You find it intrinsically meaningful and it gives you the exercise component of physical health. Okay, so it doesn't directly do much for what you eat and, and how you sleep, but on all these other areas, it provides for many people, basically for people who 
just light up when they see a sword. People who are naturally inclined to find swords meaningful. And remember, meaning is something we bring to things. Right. It's not intrinsic in most things. But for some people, they pick up a sword and they just light up like a candle. And it's beautiful to watch. And so for those people, the practice of swordsmanship gives them meaning and social connections and a physical practice, all of which benefits their physical and mental health. Right, right. So who can find it useful? What type of people come to you for, you know, getting training? Business people, companies call you? Or is no. it, what's well, the proposition? Okay, I, yeah, I get called by companies occasionally, but it's honestly, that's not what, what I'm most interested in. Um, the only common denominator I have found for students who do well with the sword, in other words, take it up and stick with it and, and improve, the only common denominator I have found is they are interested in swords. They like swords. Okay. okay. So, you know, I have a, a student who started training for the first time in her life uh, a couple of years ago at the age of 65. And she's had multiple hip surgeries and whatnot. So, you know, physically not in great shape. Well, she's better, in better shape now than she was. But when she started, she's you know, a woman in her 60s with dodgy hips. Right. Great student. Um, my youngest student who ever trained successfully was 10 when he started. He's now been training for about 15 years and he's a tank. <laughs> really hard to beat. Um, so men, women, old young from all walks of life we've had like lorry drivers computer programmers um people who make clothes for a living people who drive taxis doesn't matter right it's are you into the swords if you if you see the sword and you go oh right okay okay yeah that's that's who it works for and you know that exists on like a, a scale or a spectrum so some people are like, well, that looks a bit interesting. I'll try that. And they come along and they try it and they get hooked or they don't. Right. So it's perfectly all right just to come along and try it. Oh, well, that looks interesting. Yeah, swords are kind of cool. I, I like Jedis and knights and whatnot. Well, let's have a go. And some people are madly into the history side of it. Okay. So yeah, that's very they, interesting. They, yeah. Yeah. So they, they come to me, they come to me because, oh, history. Right. And the historical component is what attracts them, but it, they may stay because they find out they really, really like the physical stuff. Or they may come because they are a martial artist who's interested in all sorts of martial arts and they've been doing, you know, punching, kicking stuff, karate or MMA or whatever for ages. And they just want to expand their martial arts knowledge. And so they come along and have a go with the swords and the swords hook them or the history hooks them, yeah? So, you know, it, you, you don't have to be like completely obsessed with swords to start, but it, I should warn anyone listening that swords are addictive. They ought to come with a, like a government health warning, Okay. right? They are, yeah, pick one up and you may become addicted and it will be very, very good for you. So. <laughs> yeah, but they should also know that it cannot be used on anyone else. It's just for training. Yeah, well, of course. Yes, but, but you know, for every every civilized person understands that automatically. Ab absolutely. It's, it's absolutely. Like, you know, absolutely. Absolutely. We, yeah. we, don't, we don't go killing each other. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> In fact, 
even if you have even slight bit of uh, you can say uh, anger within you this sort of things brings them out it it takes you, takes it out of your system forever it can be very well, therapeutic i mean it's it's really important if you're feeling angry on the day you shouldn't fence with your friends you shouldn't actually right. do the the pair practice where you're trying to hit each other okay but if you're angry on the day you can go and you can hit the wall target or yes. the punch bag target or the, and you can really get it out of your system like ah my goddamn yes. boss <clears throat> right <laughs> won't give me a pay rise <clears throat> where's wants me to work like 20 extra hours a week <clears throat> no extra money <clears throat> right and you feel a lot better afterwards just yes it's 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 really important that if you're feeling angry on the day, you do the solo training. So the only person you can hurt is yourself. <laughs> and then when, when that's out of your system and you're feeling calm, then you can go and train with your friends. Yes. That's yes, really important. Indeed. Yes. Very important. And guy, one thing I wanted to understand is that people who are watching this program or if they learn about mm -hmm. these things, then uh, how can they learn from you is it that they have to be there or they can learn it online oh no um well i have lots and lots of books for a start some people learn best from books and i have books from which you can learn how to use a medieval longsword how to use a renaissance rapier um, various other things i also have online courses so if you prefer video instruction uh you can you know you can have me a lot of people actually in places other than Britain will download some of my videos onto a laptop or something, take it to wherever they're training, and then let me teach the class for them. <laughs> this is kind of fun. Um, so there's online courses which are pre-recorded video courses. So it doesn't matter what time zone you're in. It doesn't matter when you want to train. It's always there. And I do occasionally teach online uh, sort of live classes. And, and of course, I also, well, not so much after COVID, but we're getting back to that. But before COVID, I was traveling a lot, teaching live in-person seminars in America and Australia and places like that. So um, obviously, the most expensive thing is to fly to the UK and train with me directly. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> it's a lot of money. Um, and you can get a lot of the benefit of that just from either my books or my online courses or every now and then when I do a live online seminar, yeah, people can join that. Yeah. I'll add a lot of description, you know, in uh, your uh, social media links and your website onto my YouTube description sure. so that we can, people can. Yeah. But talking I, of talking. Yes. Carry on. Carry on. So I was going to say, and you can find all of that stuff at swordschool.com, which is like the best URL ever. I got in, I think it's 1999 or 2000. I registered the yeah. URL sword and it's just like it's the best URL in history. Yeah, it's like bookingwater.com. Yeah, <laughs> uh, talking of books, uh, guy, I'm I don't know where to end. There are so many things to ask. You have got you know, schools, training schools, yeah, books. I looked at Amazon and I was waiting for quite some time to. For the number of books to end, but it was just like coming up again. So many, so many books you have written. Yes. And, and yeah, so tell us just a bit about and about your Windsor method. You know, I can continue oh, sure. for long. Yeah, yeah. 
but but uh, we, we obviously cannot do that forever we got to have another session but do tell us about your books and especially the Windsor method please well thank you AJ for letting me plug my book here it is the method. <laughs> basically um, this book is was inspired by the pandemic okay because my students all over the world were suddenly not able to go to their sword classes right and for us for us sword people that is a mental health crisis by itself okay so in addition to the stresses and strains of the pandemic people's coping mechanism training in swords wasn't available but every high level martial artist is able to train on their own and and actually develop on their own so when there are no training partners available you can still do useful work and also there are some practices that it's better to train on your own okay so what the book does is it distills the mental and physical practices that we use and it's organized according to how much um sort of mobility and possibility you have so if let's say you've broken both your legs and you're in a hospital bed and you're miserable right you can still practice meditation and you can practice breathing exercises okay and that by itself is better than nothing and if you can move around Absolutely. a bit there are some more sort of there are some gentle physical practices that you can do there are strength training flexibility training striking practice forms practice all of that sort of thing so what what the book is trying to communicate to people is that um, it doesn't matter if you're on your own, you can still practice meaningfully. And the critical thing is every human being is different and what works for one person may not work for somebody else. Okay, Absolutely. so what, what I'm trying to do in the book is to teach people how to figure out what actually works for them and then how they can incorporate that into their training. Okay? Because you know, what works for you may not work for me. And so you have to know a broad spread of possible practices. And then you have to be able to select from that broad spread the things that actually work for you personally. So, and that's the advantage of training by yourself. You only have to take your own needs into account. You don't have to worry about what's good for your training partner. Right? So it's called the Windsor Method, the Principles of Solo Training because it's about finding out what works for you personally and doing that in your solo training, regardless of your current level of health or fitness. Wonderful. That's a lot of information and I'm sure it is available online too. It's available everywhere. Yeah, of course it is. Yes. So I won't take more, more of your time. I know you have a class that's coming up in the next 10 minutes or so. Uh, <laughs> I'm aware of that. Uh, so all I can do is to thank you so much, Guy Windsor, for coming on to the show and sharing about such a wonderful thing and talking about how people can use such a thing for making their lives better and how physical activity is so much needed, especially in today's time. With that, well, it's a wrap on this edition of the KAJ Masterclass Live. Thank you so much, Guy. Thank you, AJ. It's been lovely to meet you.